Welcome everyone to the Cardano Effect podcast, episode 23. The purpose of this podcast is to take high-level developer information and projects that are occurring within the Cardano space and break them down into bite-sized, consumable pieces of information for everyday use. I'm your host, Philippe, and let's get this podcast started. So our three hosts are with us today, Sebastian, Rick, and myself, and we have a very special guest who Rick will be introducing very shortly. We're going to get right into the mix of things, a very short introduction today. We have a lot of questions from the community, and we want to try to get to all of them. So if you haven't liked, commented, subscribed on this channel, please do so. Please consider supporting this channel. We really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. I'd like to give a quick shout out to the podcast Francais Cardano that just started from Quentin and Robin. So you can go check that out on the on their channel. I'll put the link below. And basically for all the French speakers out there, they started a podcast as well, which is wonderful to hear. Um, so with that being said, I want to preface this by saying that none of what we say on this podcast is financial advice or should be taken as such. You are your best financial advisor, and if you don't think you are, you need to find someone who's qualified to do so. So with that being said, Rick, how are you doing today? What's going on? Philippe, I'm doing great today, thanks. You know, it's springtime, early March now, so pretty nice here on the eastern side of the United States. And I'm also very glad to hear about the French language podcast, and it would be really nice to see other languages pick up on doing podcasts as well. I would like to make note to our viewers and listeners that this podcast is available on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And we have our Reddit channel is The Cardano Effect. That's where we collected our, our user inputs, the viewer inputs. And there was a lot of good questions on there today as well. And we also have the short takes on the Cardano Clips YouTube channel, which is starting to become pretty popular because the Cardano Clips have a question followed by the answer in the video. So those are very useful. And so that's it up to that point. So I would like to introduce our special guest today, and is Professor Agalos Kiaias, Chief Scientist at IOHK. He has written many of the white papers that are used in Cardano. So Professor, how are you doing today, sir, and where are you calling in from? I'm doing great. So thanks for having me on the show. And uh, I'm here in Athens, actually, Greece today, uh, and I'm joining in. Very excited to be on the show and tell you more about uh, the work we're doing. I started working in cryptography about the mid-90s when I was a math student, actually. And as a matter of fact, here at the University of Athens, here is where I completed my math degree as an undergrad. So I became acquainted with cryptography. It was a very different time then in terms of what cryptography was about. Uh, but it's, uh, in many ways, it was, uh, it was exciting in, in, in similar ways that, that it is today. Much more theoretical, of course, at the time, and, and the questions were different. Uh, but surprisingly, many, many of the very nice questions that uh, uh, we are dealing today in the context of uh, constructing blockchain protocols and distributed ledgers uh, were, were discussed then. So issues like secure multi-party computation, distributing trust, etc., were uh, at uh, you know, the cutting edge of crypto research at that time. Uh, of course, things were quite raw and uh, many, many, many results were missing. So we've went a long way till that uh, since that time uh, and it uh, has been a fascinating ride definitely for me and I guess for other people that started uh, started then uh, and earlier on so um, well now about 20 years later uh, it's uh, it's it's a fascinating ride and uh, it's actually very nice to see many of these results and many of the problems that we were studying at the time were quite theoretical it's very nice to see them actually being implemented 
and having people excited about about this technology. So here we are. I'm excited about the technology too. And it sounds like, so you were there for the birth of crypto long before Bitcoin even came about um, many years beforehand. Was it mid nineties or late nineties you started? Yeah, I start, I, w- I was a math student, uh, started in 1992 at the university. I became familiar with cryptography around that time. Uh, and then I was very fascinated by that. I wanted to do research uh, and, and crypto was, was uh, really like a big excitement for me at the time. So I just went right ahead and started doing graduate research, uh, um, research as a graduate student. That was like in 96. Then in 2002, I got my PhD and then I continued doing research uh, as an academic. So starting from 2002, uh, it's already like, uh, you know, a number of years that I'm working as an academic uh, at universities and as a researcher in cryptography. Great response. Thanks for thanks for giving us that introduction. We're going to move right into the Reddit questions and some of them will, they may overlap. The questions may overlap. Um, we want to know your story about how you got to IOHK, but I see that some of the questions have asked directly that statement. So we'll get to that when we get to that. Okay. So our first question is from user Lettuce Chill. And his first question are, is what are the findings from DLT and ZK Snarks research? Any interesting ideas that can be integrated with Ouroboros? And what are some of the interesting things of these protocols? So this is a three-part question um, asking you about DLT and ZK Snarks research and how that relates with Ouroboros. Yeah, okay. So let me just uh, take it from the ZK Snarks. As DLT, I guess... Um Distributed ledger technology is a very broad concept, so I'm not sure actually um, I, w- what uh, what this might refer to. I mean, distributed ledger technology is a broad is a, is a very broad umbrella term, but uh, zk snarks is something quite specific that we can get on right away. So zk snarks is a, a very interesting cryptographic tool. Uh, it stands for zero knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge. Uh, so this sounds like a handful, but basically what it does is that it enables to communicate that a certain statement uh, that is publicly known has a proper structure and I know certain possibly private uh, items or uh, components of that statement. So uh, these are a technology which uh, belongs in a big tradition uh, in cryptographic research that goes back many decades and has to do with uh, zero-knowledge proofs. So uh, a ZK-SNARK enables to create such a zero-knowledge proof, so-called, in a way that is quite efficient uh, to be uh, to be uh, stored, so the size of the proof itself is is small, and then this is where the succinct or the S part in the snark uh, comes from. So, uh, over the last uh, few years, there's been a lot of developments in uh, designing more efficient and uh, performant uh, zk snarks, and uh, it has been early on observed that they can be used uh, in the context of blockchain protocols to um, um, perhaps. Um, potentially add them private, uh, make them more private or make them more efficient. Now, in the context of Ouroboros, uh, we have already seen a couple of examples where ZK Snarks could be useful. Actually, we do have two uh, works that are coming up in the upcoming IEEE Security and Privacy Conference uh, that will be in California in May 2019. In the first of these works called Ouroboros Crypsinus, 
uh, we are developing a version of uh, the Ouroboros protocol that is privacy enhanced. So basically, if you want very similar to uh, uh, Zcash for uh, those viewers, that, viewers, for those listeners that are familiar with that protocol, it's possible to hide uh, the transactions so that it's not possible by looking at the ledger to understand uh, what is, let's say, the recipient of a specific payment. Um, so we're developing a system where it's proof of stake, but at the same time, uh, it is uh, possible to have this uh, privacy-enhanced ledger. And this is done by um, applying by an, as an application of ZK SNARKs. Uh, another potential for ZK SNARKs uh, is coming in another paper, which also is going to appear at the same conference. Uh, and this is the proof of stake side chains, where uh, we show that it's possible to use ZK SNARKs to create uh, succinct proofs that a certain event uh, took place in a blockchain and then demonstrate that in a uh, different blockchain. So this is the problem that refers to how is it possible to establish uh, an event in one blockchain and then uh, have another uh, event take place in a target blockchain uh, as um, uh, an outcome. So this is something that enables things like peggings between blockchains, transferring assets between blockchains, and so forth. So there's plenty of nice applications about ZK SNARKs, and, uh, and this would be something that uh, uh, we definitely have in the context of Ouroboros research. And there's like these two papers that, as an example, that show uh, how we plan to use them in at least two different cases for privacy and for uh, interoperability between different uh, blockchains. So you mentioned Ouroboros Crypsinus. Um, I have a follow-up question personally. Um, you're mentioning privacy within the proof-of-stake protocol, Cardano. And um, Cardano wants to interoperate with the legacy system. So how do you balance privacy with truly being interoperable? Because large companies, large existing companies, you have the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Googles, they want to maintain a certain level of control. And that's just a, a broad example, but I'm sure smaller companies want to maintain a sense of control as well. Is there Are there instances where companies can control how private their transactions can be? Or is there is there some sort of sliding scale? Uh, yeah. So um, I guess here the issue is that uh, you can think of privacy at uh, having at many different levels. Uh, and uh, the, the question here is that there's always a trade-off. Um, on the one hand, you definitely want to have uh, privacy for a certain number of transactions. I mean, there is uh, a lot of, uh, for example, legal requirements that a company should conform to. For example, like in Europe, there is the GDPR regulation, and there are similar data privacy regulations everywhere in the world that uh, a company that handles uh, uh, client data uh, should be compliant with. So um, having protocols which are decentralized is clearly uh, comes at a certain moment and clashes with privacy. The problem here is like just being decentralized means that you may have many different actors uh, being uh, active in maintaining, for example, a distributed ledger. And then the immediate question that arises is that what information potentially these actors should possess in order to perform the act of maintenance. So. Um, Actually, this is in many cases a very interesting trade-off 
And uh, and this is actually where some of these uh, cryptographic techniques, for example, like ZK SNARKs, can be particularly useful. Many distributed ledger uh, protocols, um, as they have right, right now, they they have serious privacy um, uh, serious privacy leakages, so to speak. Uh, I mean, we can. You know, for example, Bitcoin is a, is, is a very good example of that, where uh, basically there is a lot of information to be extracted by analyzing the Bitcoin blockchain, as you know, numerous, numerous works have shown already. So it's very interesting to see um, how, to what degree it is possible to achieve decentralization and privacy at the same time. Uh, there is like, for example, Roboros Cripsinus is one of the examples of research that we've been doing recently towards that direction. But in general, I, um, I, I, I can say that this is one of the very interesting research uh, directions right now for uh, distributed ledgers, uh, and one that I anticipate is going to be a lot of more uh, work that needs to be invested on in the next uh, one or two years. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that answer. I appreciate that. So I'll move back to the Reddit question. Uh, Lettuce Chill had one more question and basically was asking, what is coming after Ouroboros Genesis? So we have a, a new protocol that uh, we completed recently. Uh, it's called Ouroboros Kronos and is building directly on the Ouroboros Genesis work. So Ouroboros Kronos is uh, a, um, a new generation of the protocol that we're going to be publicly releasing in the next uh, couple of months. The uh, problem that we are tackling in Ouroboros Kronos is uh, that that has to do with the time information which is available to the participants. Now, if you look at um, proof-of-stake blockchain protocols uh, like Ouroboros and others before uh, that have been proposed, they use the time information uh, that is available to the clients in a non-trivial way as a way to determine how do you extend the blockchain. So a very natural open question is whether it is possible to design a proof-of-stake blockchain protocol that has as little time dependency as possible. And when I say time dependency, I'm referring to access to what is the right time. Now, the problem here is that in a decentralized environment, having access to the right time uh, might be a quite challenging uh, uh, might be a quite challenging target. Uh, how do you determine what is the current time? So the work that we've um, undertaken in uh, the Ouroboros Kronos construction uh, and proof-of-stake blockchain is that tries to eliminate the assumption for having access to a global clock and uh, at the same time shows how is it possible to create a proof-of-stake-based global clock that can be used as a global time reference point for other protocols that can be built on top of that. So uh, this is basically achieved by having the nodes that participate in the protocol using a blockchain way for maintaining and adjusting a joint clock that we prove uh, it can be assured that it is within a particular small time window. So in other words, it's not possible for an attacker to cause the nodes to become sort of desynchronized with that clock. So um, I'm very excited about this paper, actually, because it shows that we can have a much more resilient way 
to build a global clock protocol. And uh, I anticipate also that such a type of work can have other applications in higher level protocols that would like to have access to a robust clock uh, that could now be provided by the protocol. So here's an example, let's say that uh, you can have a, pro a blockchain protocol like the Ouroboros Kronos protocol providing clock services or timing services to protocols that are being built on top of it. Well, that's pretty amazing because um, I've been working with time-sensitive applications for quite some time. And when you have time-sensitive applications, keeping the clocks synchronized has always been very important because if they go out of sync, then some nodes begin to fail or they don't respond correctly. Um, so that's interesting that you're solving that problem. And one question to kind of piggyback on top of that question from Lettuce Chill, the various versions of Ouroboros Genesis, what's coming afterwards. Something I was curious about is like the next version of Ouroboros that we're going to is Ouroboros BFT, then Ouroboros Genesis, uh, then eventually Kronos and Hydra. Do these different versions of Ouroboros, do they build upon each other as as the new ones come out, like will Orboros Kronos, eventually when that comes out, will it contain properties from the previous versions of Orboros? Or is it a whole new implementation? Yes, thanks for asking this, because uh, I, I understand there are people that, uh, you know, asking the question, how does the different versions of the protocol compare to each other? So basically what happens is that Kronos is building on top of Genesis. So um, you can think of Kronos as a, an extension of the Orboros Genesis protocol, that uh, provides this clock capability. Now, uh, in the Ouroboros Genesis protocol, for instance, the clock was assumed, so it was possible, uh, the protocol was described in a setting where the participants of the protocol had access to time, and, and now this is removed uh, in the case of Ouroboros Kronos. But Ouroboros Kronos incorporates all the features uh, that um, were present, let's say, in the Ouroboros Genesis protocol. So it's a protocol that basically uh, built on top of that previous work. At the same time, I should maybe I can add to that, uh, that there might be cases where uh, you believe that you have access to goods uh, to, to a global time. And in that case, you may not want to deploy Ouroboros Kronos um, because uh, deploying Ouroboros Kronos, of course, means that there should be additional uh, logic, protocol logic, that needs to be um, implemented. And even though there is not a significant uh, footprint, still the protocol has to send additional messages that will facilitate the synchronization. So like in every case, uh, we need to have a uh, good understanding of the problem and the deployment setting that a certain blockchain protocol needs to uh, operate, and then we can choose the right protocol. So basically what we're designing is that we're designing protocols that have the right set of features, but then in a specific deployment, uh, there is a completely different thinking that goes into about what features are relevant. So now you can ask, we have Ouroboros Kronos, and then another question could be, for instance, in Cardano, what would be the right protocol to implement? Right? And these are two separate questions. Uh, the one is dealing about basic protocol design questions, and the other is asking about a specific application, what features of the protocol, of the robust protocols, are relevant and have to be implemented. I have a, a related question also. 
So in a lot of Irish case communications leading up to Shelley, uh, there's been mention about Orbor's genesis, but also of Prouse. And sometimes it's also called uh, Prouse plus genesis. Uh, so can you kind of clarify for our audience, uh, what does Irish K mean when they say Shelley will be Prouse plus genesis or genesis or the different wordings they've used in the past? Yeah, so I, I guess this reflects the type of thinking I'm, I'm talking about. So we do have these protocols, Ouroboros Prowse, for instance, and Ouroboros Genesis. So Ouroboros Prowse dealt with uh, two main issues. The first one was about these adaptive attacks. So it dealt with attacks that take advantage of information of the protocol execution and they try to direct the attack adaptively based on that information. And it also dealt with issues of uh, partial synchrony of networks that uh, they are not operating in a synchronized fashion as, as, in the case, um, as in the case of the analysis of the Ouroboros protocol. So the first protocol. Now going to the case of Genesis, we dealt with the problem of uh, taking a client that uh, would like to connect to the blockchain protocol, uh, to the instance of the blockchain protocol that is running, and the client would like to connect to the right blockchain so and not be confused, let's say, potentially by an attacker that would like to confuse a client and potentially connect to a wrong version of the distributed ledger. So when uh, uh, at IOHK, we sometimes have referred to Prowse plus Genesis is basically the process that says we have these features coming from Ouroboros Prowse and Ouroboros Genesis, and we have the threat model that uh, we want to uh, uh, use uh, in the case of Cardano. And we are using all these protocols features from these protocols to get the right protocol instantiation. Because I have to say, going from the paper to the actual fully parameterized implementation, there's still a lot of engineering work that is needed. Uh, and there's a lot, lot of fine tuning that is necessary. So uh, basically, Prowse plus Genesis uh, would actually mean here that we take these features and we suitably parameterize them for uh, the application of particular deployment, let's say, in the context of the Cardano system. Uh, so there could be multiple instances of Ouroboros running at the same time on the same blockchain. Is that possible? No, no. Uh, per perhaps I didn't. I didn't make myself clear on that. So what happens is that there is one Ouroboros protocol that actually uses features, uses these features which have been published as part of Ouroboros Prowse and Ouroboros Genesis. So it's essentially one protocol that shares characteristics with all these with all these works. And you can think of it as the Ouroboros implementation for Cardano that is using features from Prowse Genesis in this particular case. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, uh, so our next question. Thank you, Professor. Our next question is from RJM Coin, kind of on the same lines, uh, the different flavors of Cardano and Ouroboros. And RJM Coin asks, can you tell us more about Enterprise Cardano? Yeah, so I guess like, the relevant, the relevant topic here to discuss is what do we learn from all these protocols about deploying protocols in the permissioned environment? And, and this is a quite broad question that uh, um, we have explored and asked a number of times. Now, obviously, Cardano itself is a public blockchain, um, but it's very interesting to explore what do we learn 
from all these designs that we're doing for public blockchains, like the Roboros protocol, for the context of permissioned uh, distributed ledgers. And permission distributed ledgers actually have a lot of applications, and, and this is something that is definitely within scope of our uh, general investigation at IOHK, and most certainly like from a research point of view at IOHK Research. So what we have right now is a new protocol that we call Ouroboros BFT. We published it last year. This is a version of the Ouroboros protocol which is aiming to answer the question, is it possible to get a simple effective protocol for a Byzantine fault-tolerant scenario, a distributed ledger that is based on uh, the Ouroboros design. And this is what we did there, and the protocol actually is um, very simple and 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 uh, um, something actually that I'm particularly happy about is that it demonstrates how is it possible to exploit basic ideas and concepts from blockchain design to uh, and brings them to the space of classical uh, Byzantine fault tolerant protocols, and and this is actually a protocol that we have implemented and is going to be used in a number of different occasions. Most certainly, actually, it's also going to be used within Cardano, as uh, we're going to be using this as a transition protocol from the uh, first implementation of uh, uh, the Ouroboros protocol that uh, is running right now to in transition to the version of the protocol that uh, is going to be running Shelly. Uh, so the Ouroboros BFT protocol is going to be used as this transition uh, point, but uh, we also have other plans uh, for Ouroboros BFT in the, in the context of permissioned ledgers, and, um, and we're going to be rolling them out uh, later on. Awesome. Thank you, Professor. And if any of the viewers have further questions about the transition, please see episode 20 with Duncan Coots, where he explains that transition process uh, very thoroughly during that episode. So that's a good tie back to the previous episode. So, all right. So the next question that comes from RGM coin is also asked by Audi2053 on Reddit. Two people had the same question. The question is, uh, do you have a reply to the Fly Client paper regarding criticism of Nipah Pals? And what I'll do is I'll read Audi 2053 has a more thorough description. So for the listeners who are not familiar with that paper, the Fly Client paper, Audi goes on to explain, a recent Fly Client paper on SPV wallet suggested that Nipah Pals, and what they're referring to is Ethereum and Bitcoin here. They have a separate paper that's similar to one of the papers that Professor Kiyas had written. So what they're going to say is, it suggested that NUPA PALS can only be implemented in a proof-of-work blockchain with static block difficulty, i.e. not in the case of Bitcoin and almost all other proof-of-work chains. They don't have static block difficulty. Furthermore, it is suggested that the super blocks in NUPA PALS can be easily influenced by an adversary by bribing the miners to not publish the blocks with definite hashes. How true are those claims and how could you defend it? If that's true, will the Nipah Pals work only on proof of stake chains? So uh, I guess the question is there, was, I'm assuming you've uh, you've seen the fly paper from ePrint? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about it and about that paper and uh, how it affects Cardano 
Sure. Okay. So so let me start from the from the top. Um, I guess talking about NIPAPAUS. So NIPAPAUS or non-interactive proofs of proofs of work is a cryptographic primitive. So what does that mean? Is is one of the sort of objects that we study uh, in in cryptography? Very very similar, let's say, to uh, you know, or at the same level, if you want, with the zk snark or non-interactive zero-knowledge proof, etc. So these are some of the objects that are interesting in cryptographic design. So Nipopau is actually a primitive that we introduced, and the the reason that we introduced it is that. The objective was, is it possible in a proof-of-work blockchain to create a proof about a certain predicate that happened uh, in the chain that is adopted uh, by the miners that are running a particular proof-of-work-based blockchain? And is it possible to communicate that that proof to a verifier in a way that the verifier will not have to have um, what sometimes in computer science is called complexity, or uh, if you want running time to make it a bit bit simpler, that is proportional to the whole size of uh, the blockchain that uh, is to be verified. So a non-interactive proof of proof of work is a particular instance of a proof of proof of work Proof-of-proof-of-work is a primitive that was introduced in a previous paper that basically did exactly the same thing, but potentially interactively. And a non-interactive proof-of-proof-of-work or NIPAPAO is a protocol or an algorithm, if you want, that enables a prover to demonstrate that a certain event happened in a blockchain that is maintained by a set of miners in a proof-of-work uh, type of setting to a verifier so that the verifier can um, verify that claim that the predicate took place efficiently with running time again which is like less than the than the the the, the blockchain that uh, is observed or the blockchain in question so this is a very useful primitive obviously and and you can immediately see that it has a lot of applications for example in the context of doing a efficient payment verification but you can also think of it as having applications in the context of minimizing the state that uh, is required to be maintained by participants in the protocol and so forth. So, um, so what we did in the in the paper where uh, we were discussing uh, NIPAPAUS is that we all we introduced the primitive, but we also gave a construction. So, um, this construction uh, was detailed in our paper and was used was using this interlinked data structure. So, basically, it was uh, based on the fact that the blockchain that is used to construct these proofs has a certain structure. So overall, I think uh, this is a great question. It's a great question from a cryptographic point of view. And I'm very, very happy that other people are working on improving constructions for, for NIPAPAUS and basically light client design in general. Because this is uh, how you can think about these questions, right? We pose questions for cryptographic design and then we have constructions for them. So, so it's very nice that uh, other people are working on the same problem. And Fly Client, in a sense, is another implementation of a NIPAPAO. And uh, I've seen the work, at least uh, at, uh, at the first reading, and I think it's worthwhile and it has good potential. Now, we had a number of open questions that uh, left in the NIPAPAO paper. Uh, and these questions had to do actually with some of the issues now you're pointing out. So these are open questions that were clearly stated in the paper. Like we were working on static difficulty and uh, we were having as an open question whether it's possible to have a construction in variable difficulty, as well as we were having questions about how is it possible to make these uh, NIPA powers both succinct and secure. So 
it would be nice to see if these questions are solved. Um, I haven't been able to verify that. There's a lot of technical details which unfortunately are missing right now from the published draft, but uh, uh, I think like the approach uh, taken in Fly Client is, is very interesting and I'm going to be waiting to see uh, for a full version that has the full proofs. Um, needless to say, at the same time, we're also working on this question. So after publishing NIPA PAUS and identifying all the issues, we continue to have work and we have a lot of unpublished work currently in draft form of which I'm hoping that we're going to be completing soon and, and publicizing. So in any case, I cannot, I think like what's important to keep in mind here is that it cannot, the importance of clear security models and having all accompanying proofs cannot be understated. So if you look at our papers, we never claim results without fully substantiating our claims with security proofs. And in general, like if you do cryptographic design, the construction itself is always developed together with the security proof. The reason for that is that there is an interplay always between the construction and the proof. So what, what happens actually in cryptographic design is that you identify a question, which is, for example, design an IPAPAL, and then you start developing a construction, and you develop the construction together with the security proof that the construction you have meets the objective. So in that particular case, NIPAPAO is the objective, then you have an algorithm, a construction, and then you have a security proof that the algorithm you have meets the objective. So what happens in cryptographic design is that the construction and the proof are developed together. The reason is that the construction itself, very frequently, has specific features that enable the proof to go through. So... A construction without a security proof is rarely interesting or useful. And the reason for that is that you can never know for sure whether actually it solves the objective you have uh, set. So um, this is something that I think there's a lot of research that's still required to be done. And uh, I'm very excited that there is more people are working on this because these are really interesting questions. And actually, this was also our hope uh, that other people will be uh, inspired uh, to solve and work on the same questions. Because I think these are some of the very interesting questions uh, in the context of proof-of-work-based blockchains. Yes, I was glad to see that that paper was published as well, because they actually referred to you in the abstract. And as I read the abstract, I realized, oh, they're doing very similar to NEPAPALS, but they're trying to improve it in some way. So the whole uh, peer review and the open publishing of these papers it's actually working. It's getting people talking and thinking and trying to have many different people solve these problems. So I thought that was pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this is exactly also, um, you know, what we aspire by the work we do at IOSK. I mean, we, we actually do open research exactly to achieve that effect. Uh, we want the, our community to work as a whole and try to attack these problems. These are very interesting questions, and we still have a long way to go uh, in order to find conclusive and good solutions for, uh, for these uh, you know, basic cryptographic problems that arise in that context. So there's definitely promise for uh, uh, for uh, good constructions here and uh, but there's definitely more work needed so we're still we're still not there definitely not in terms of having a, a completely answered all the relevant questions here which in this particular case is having a nipa pow construction that uh, is uh, fully uh, and formally uh, analyzed uh, in a threat model that includes variable difficulty, which obviously, as the uh, very astute uh, uh, 
uh, Reddit users uh, that you mentioned have identified that definitely this is the question that is relevant in that setting. And I should say, I mean, this is also something that we had very, very clear uh, in the NIPAPAO paper. This was one of the open questions that were left in that paper. And it's actually something that we have uh, um, already quite a lot of work that isn't published. Uh, but as I mentioned, like we uh, are working always on the mode of having a full security proof together with a construction and and we're only going to have something out uh, when we are confident that uh, we have the full analysis available so that the readers of our work will be able to have also the full justification and security claims about why our construction works and actually meets the objective. I'm amazed by the progress and the process both. Philippe, would you like to uh, take the next question there from Reddit user Audi2053? Lots of really good questions coming from that direction. Yes, that sounds good. That sounds good. I just wanted to let everyone know that you can find the papers on the IOHK team portal website. I mean, the IOHK papers website. And Professor Kiyas has a lot of papers that are included in this stack. So if you want to check it out, go and download the paper and take a read for yourself. The Nepo Pow paper is there. And you can also check out Sebastian did a multi-part series on YouTube discussing Nepo Pals, which is great. So you can check that out as well. So the next question by Adi2053. And I also wanted to add that Professor Kiyas has over 5,100 citations on, his, on all of his papers, which is legendary. Legendary. So the next question by Adi2053 is, will someone be able to implement private smart contracts on Cardano or would private necessarily mean an entire different blockchain with privacy feature, smart contracts connected as a Cardano sidechain? Yeah, so um, I guess like the first thing to ask here is like what exactly is a private smart contract? And and uh, privacy itself is a, is a difficult notion to define, there's many different flavors of privacy and many different ways you can think about uh, private smart contracts. So uh, at a certain level, a, a certain type of privacy should be capable of be, to be obtained from uh, what the, the Cardano computation layer uh, already will be able to offer um, once it's fully operational. Uh, at the same time, there are notions of privacy that uh, the uh, basic computation layer uh, will not be able to have it and uh, what we would need is uh, an extension of, of that privacy model. For one thing, the logistics part itself is uh, something that le leaks a lot of privacy and when I talk about logistics I mean the uh, accounts that you see in the ledger, the UTXO set, all the information that you can extract by observing how tokens are moved from one uh, from one account to the next or from one address to the next. So um, we definitely have, we're definitely very actively working on ISK research about solving these questions. And uh, in the, I cannot say something right now in terms of what's going to happen, but I can definitely see possibilities here for having side chains uh, within the Cardano ecosystem that offer uh, some type of privacy enhanced uh, smart contract functionality. Uh, this capability might be together also with uh, a proof of stake uh, 
privacy, like the one that I mentioned earlier with Ouroboros Crypsinus. So there's a lot of possibilities here, and uh, a lot of that I also do hope that is going to be community-driven. So we have to see what the community of Cardano wants, uh, and then accordingly things could be implemented. The one thing I can say for sure is that we do the research and we try to understand exactly what is needed. Uh, so uh, then when the community uh, is, is ready, we will have the options there, and it will be possible to move the Cardano ecosystem towards the, the right direction. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thanks for that response. Rick, did you want to move on to the next Reddit user, Why Petrov? Yeah, sure. That was a lot of good stuff. And uh, the last one from Reddit user Audi, um, I think that was uh, already kind of covered. It's very specific. Assuming that the Nipopal paper is flawless and works as assumed, it's not flawless. Uh, Professor already put that out. So we'll go to the next question from Why Petrov. But thank you for those questions, Audi 2053. Fantastic stuff. So Y Petrov asks, how well is Cardano secured and any plans to implement untraceable feature in Cardano, which we kind of touched on already a little bit, or confidential transactions? So let's kind of touch on the uh, how well is Cardano secured? A very general question. There. Yeah, well, I mean, this has to do with the whole, um, you know, in, uh, task of taking like a very complex protocols like the proof of stake blockchain protocols like Ouroboros and taking it down to a production ready engineering solution. So there's a lot of effort done at IOTSK with that. Now, from my point of view, I, what I make sure is that we work with the engineering team as a, as a very tightly coupled team. And uh, we are in very, very close collaboration at every step of the process uh, to make sure that uh, actually what is being coded and what is being implemented is something that aligns with uh, what is formally analyzed uh, in the Ouroboros papers. Uh, the, the same is the case for many of the other um, many of the other processes that are connected to the uh, to the Cardano system, like the wallet and so forth. So there's a lot of there's a lot of effort put there uh, to make sure that the system is secure. And certainly, this is like our our, our primary consideration. Uh, in general, I would say this is one of the most fascinating aspects of our work: taking uh, basic protocols and designs and making sure that the uh, the way that they are engineered conforms to their security specifications. So uh, there is a lot of effort in that, and at the same time, there is effort on making this process as transparent as possible. So this is something also that um, we're putting a lot of effort on publicizing the way we work. Uh, for example, there are formal specifications of, for the implementations. Uh, there is a lot of work that is put to document that and make it publicly available. So uh, this is basically one of the most exciting aspects of the work uh, we do at IOSK. And, and certainly I hope that uh, this is something that the community enjoys in seeing, uh, seeing it as it unravels. Thank you, Professor. And I think that that addresses all aspects of those questions. Uh, but there is one part where it says, are there any plans to implement untraceable features in Cardano? I'm not sure what untraceable features are because a blockchain is by definition traceable. But uh, do you have any comments on that? implementing untraceable features. I'm not sure what the definition is. Yeah, so I, I would assume that this probably refers to privacy-enhanced transactions, uh, like, for example, the ones that we discussed in the context of Ouroboros Crypsinus. And um, I would say there's definitely a possibility of having a sidechain that enables such untraceable 
or um, you know privacy enhanced transactions. So it's not possible by looking at the ledger to see how assets are moving between addresses. And uh, this is something that I see as a possibility as a sidechain. As I mentioned before, uh, Cardano is is a community project, and we're doing the research. Uh, but at some point, like the direction of where Cardano is going to go is the right direction for Cardano is where the community uh, wants wants to take it. And uh, if the community of Cardano wants a, a higher level of confidentiality in transactions, uh, it's certainly a direction that the Cardano project will go. Thank you for that. All right. And so that covers uh, Y Petrov. Thank you very much for those questions, Y Petrov. Philippe, you got the next one? Yes. So the next Reddit user is Mystical Rider. And... Uh, this person asked, what is your view on quantum computers and how do they affect industry and cryptocurrencies? How well prepared is industry in general? And how does Cardano manage the challenge of quantum computers in the future? Yeah, so there's a lot of research in designing quantum computers. Uh, I mean, it's one of these technologies that, you know, a lot of times you hear is like it's uh, maybe like a decade away or maybe coming up. Um, I mean, for one thing, um, I have to say that a quantum thinking about the possibility of having quantum computers uh, is a very critical one from a security point of view. And it is definitely possible and conceivable to uh, have classical algorithms, classical cryptographic algorithms that are quantum secure, that basically a quantum computer is incapable of solving. And uh, it is definitely within our scope to study them. Uh, actually, within, uh, uh, within the context of the research we're doing, we are uh, looking into having a post-quantum uh, secure versions of proof-of-stake as well as proof-of-work-based protocols. This is something that we're actively doing research on. And, and this is definitely something, it was definitely one of the, some of the features that we're also going to be working on uh, for Cardano, how to make uh, the Cardano ecosystem post-quantum secure using, again, classical algorithms, right, and classical tools. That sounds good. That sounds good. One thing that I like about Cardano, they're always trying to future-proof their system. So if that comes to fruition within the next decade or 20 years, Cardano will be one of the cryptocurrencies that stands against it and is able to protect users' funds and secure the network. So that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Rick, did you want to move on to the next Reddit question? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Philippe. And also, in relation to the last question, I, I had asked Sebastian before uh, we talked offline about quantum computers and how they affect cryptography. And so for the viewers out there, basically quantum computers happen to be really good at solving the kind of cryptography that is currently used. And that's why they're working on the quantum resistant versions because the quantum computers have to be good at solving that problem. So the next Reddit question comes from Reddit user Panzer Line. And Panzer Line asks, he says, if I'm not mistaken, EU grants do fund blockchain research. Beyond core funding, are there any EU grant schemes allocated to tackle specific problems where DLT, where they refer to the distributed ledger technology, is there money allocated to tackle specific schemes for distributed ledger technology is expected to provide interesting solutions, proof of concept grants, translation programs, etc., and for which problems? Yeah, so... Um EU funding um, and in general like government funding is, is is very much in many cases very very much in line for doing work in distributed ledgers. There is a wide recognition that distributed ledgers may be able to provide better government services 
for instance. And there's also like a, a, a you know, quite uh, quite wide recognition of the fact that distributed ledger technology uh, can be quite uh, quite powerful in transforming, uh, in general, um, internet information technology. So there's a lot of government funding for uh, blockchain research, and actually, certainly, some of the research we do, even at IHK Research, is government funded. So, for example, we are IHK Research uh, is uh, a member of the Privilege Consortium, which is a European-wide uh, Horizon 2020 project. And uh, some of the questions that we are tackling, let's say, in the context of that project is uh, how is it possible in a decentralized environment to do effectively software updates? It is a very interesting question uh, because obviously doing software updates is a very critical operation at the same time can be quite challenging uh, for any decentralized system. So, and this is just one example um, of uh, how, let's say, an EU grant uh, now is, is is funding some of the fundamental questions in the context of uh, of, of uh, blockchain protocols. So, but there's certainly a lot of other opportunities, and uh, and, and this is uh, certainly something that is, is of interest for uh, the blockchain space in general. Uh, there's definitely like uh, government funding for uh, for good research in the space. Um, and I think like there's going to be more of it in the in the coming years. All right, thank you for that. And yes, having government funding is a good thing because the government has a lot of interest in blockchain technology and how it affects the use of computers in general. Okay, so our last set of questions comes from Omegius from our Reddit user. There, uh, we're going to answer the questions from their list. Uh, questions one, two, and four. So starting off with number one, Professor Agalos, KIS. How did you meet the IOHK team? Okay, so uh, we met a bit more than three years ago, I think. Uh, I mean, I joined ISK about about that time. Uh, so uh, I met Charles. Uh, we realized that we both wanted to uh, solve proof of stake, and uh, and I guess now the rest is history. Like you know, after that time, uh, we had a very good alignment with what we thought was important, uh, the approach that we had. Uh, that we were trying to follow was uh, was a very good match, and uh, and I guess the rest now is is what happened afterwards, uh, which was a lot of work to get these things going and uh, and and deliver these protocols, and and hopefully much more to come. Awesome. Second question: What is your typical day at IOHK? What does it look like? Well, a a typical day at IOHK in general, and I would say IOHK research is uh, it has to do with uh, a lot of work and meetings uh, with uh, uh, other people that uh, doing research. From my point of view, is a lot of management and context switching. Uh, this is also my typical day in general uh, because uh, at the university, uh, as a professor, chair in cybersecurity and privacy, I have to do a lot of management also in terms of uh, uh, younger researchers, uh, a lot of direct direction setting, a lot of uh, reviewing, uh, a lot of proposal preparation, a lot of organization. The same thing at IOHK, uh, where I have to manage uh, our researchers uh, on all the different research streams that under, um, that IOHK is undertaking. Uh, so from my point of view, it's a lot of context switching. Uh, from the point of view of the researchers, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, that uh, has to do with pursuing like all the solutions and the designs that uh, we are trying to do at any given time, and there's plenty of them. At the same time, I'm an active researcher. I 
you know, management is also is only something I do out of necessity. Uh, but I do like to sort of, so to speak, get my hands dirty, and I always try to sneak a little bit of time to write a few equations on a piece of paper. Sometimes I have to do it in the most improbable places, but in the most improbable times. But uh, you know, this is how it is. Uh, so, so in general, like it's 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 pretty exciting, and it's actually the average day of someone that's doing full time research and at the same time tries to monitor other people doing research and doing that in the most efficient way possible. Wow. It sounds like you have a very busy day. So we're going to get to our very last question. And this was from Omagius. And the question is, what are your favorite books? Oh boy. All right. So, uh, well, I have to think like, um, so I, I guess like I have many, many that, you know, there are books that are quite inspiring over time i mean if i start i mean you know i now just say in terms of literature i don't want to go into technical or or let's say uh non non-fiction but uh let me just give you a couple of um, a couple of examples of books i really enjoyed over time i mean i i love dostoevsky and brothers karamazov was one of the really really great books that uh, were ever written uh, Lord of the Flies by William Golding is wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed a lot uh, Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller. That's 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 a great read and it's is a lot of fun and it tells you a lot about life. Um, and finally, I th- I think I should also mention like being Greek and uh, uh, I would say my favorite uh, my favorite Greek writer is Nikos Kazantzakis and I strongly recommend uh, people that would like to. Uh, get familiar with one of the great writers that is uh, in the non-English, uh, in non-English language should, uh, should check him and read some of his books. He's, he's really great. Wow. Thanks for that, Professor. And I appreciate you being on the program today. Yes. Thank you, Professor Kiaya. So we're going to wrap this episode up. We are over our, our time and we have other obligations right now. So this was great. Uh, Professor Kiaias, you're always welcome on the Cardano Effect podcast whenever you'd like. Um, I'm assuming that you'll be in Miami later uh, next month. And um, once again, thank you for your time. We really appreciate you. The The floor is yours. If not, we'll just say goodbye to our audience. Uh, are there any last words that you have? No, thank you very much for having me on the program. It was great to be here and I'm going to be definitely in Miami. So looking forward to seeing all your listeners that might be there or might be tuning in to see some of the work we're doing uh, when we're there. It's going to be a great, uh, a great event. So very much looking forward to that. Thanks, guys. Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Until the next time. Bye. Bye-bye.